0: This time loop thing, how did you get out of it? I simply boosted the circuits and broke free. You came back of your own accord. Well, I...
1: Doctor?
0: No. No, I'm afraid not. No, obviously the Time Lords have programmed the TARDIS always to return to Earth. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic yo-yo.
1: and welcome to galactic yo-yo the podcast where dr Who fans share their unpopular opinions with the world and I have to do with them I'm your host Molly Marsh it's a Sunday evening I'm just grabbing a beer from the fridge um I just watched the new trailer for revolution of the Daleks and I thought it looked awfully exciting there's one thing this series has been good at it's been the trailers they've all been great um, even if it's always frustrating <laughs> uh waiting for the hype machine to drip 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 you all of the the promo stuff but um yeah it was once the trailer finally dropped it was great i love seeing more of jack i love seeing what the companions are up to in that tardis with all the post-it notes on it i loved i love it when the tardis set um feels like a feels like a lived-in space and that's what i that really felt like there um i love seeing a bit more of jody's a new costume that she's got um in the special that looked cool um And also um, Chris Noth is back, which no one was expecting. Well, I had heard some rumours of it and I did sort of think, well, if this is a rumour, it's probably true because it's a rumour no one would make up because no one would expect that. Um, So that's cool. Uh, And we've sort of got this Theresa May analogue by the looks of things um, as well. Uh, It does date the episode a little bit, um, probably, if if they're going for a kind of Trump-May... Uh, thing, but uh, either way, it looks cool. We've got the new Daleks as well. Um, it it kind of looks like it's got a victory of the Daleks vibe. I've seen a few people saying that with the obviously the British government endorsed uh, Daleks. I'm wondering. Um, skip this if you if you don't like speculation. Uh, this isn't a spoiler, obviously, because I haven't seen the special. But I'm speculating. I'm wondering whether these are really Daleks at all or whether they are more like somebody's, somebody on Earth's approximation of a Dalek based on what they've seen from the the um, reconnaissance Dalek that we had in, in resolution. That said, we do see the Dalek out of its casing again, <laughs> um, jumping on, Yaz yeah, right at the end of the trailer. Anyway, it all looks really good. I'm super excited for it. Kinda gutted it's not on Christmas Day, it's on New Year's Day again, but, like a lot of people have been saying, it doesn't really look like a Christmassy vibe, so I'm not I'm not all that surprised that it's that it's New Year's rather than Christmas. But um, I'm hyped, and I'm sort of wondering. Um, again, I've seen this speculation elsewhere as well. I'm sort of wondering: Is Jack a new companion for um for series series thirteen? I know you know Ch- Chibnall did a lot of work on Torchwood. Um, John Barrowman, I know, would just lap up the chance to do that. I'm wondering whether whether that's what they're going for. Um, it could be interesting if so, as long as it doesn't take away from kind of developing Yaz's character more. Or although you know, has that ship sailed? Anyway, I should probably introduce this week's um, episode. So uh, this week on the podcast, um, you'll be hearing a conversation with me and the actor, presenter, comedian, um, and soon to be ice dancer, <laughs> Rufus Hound. Um, who was a little reluctant to do the podcast at first because he was worried about his kind of fan credentials um, as we talk about at the start of the conversation. Um, But I was convinced that that it would be great and it was great and I really enjoyed talking to Rufus and he had so much to say about the kind of show that Doctor Who is, his experiences with Doctor Who, his experiences being in Doctor Who and also in Big Finish playing the monk as well. Um he was an absolute delight, um and I'm so grateful that he found time in his um, busy schedule for Galati Yo-yo. Um, so i'm gonna I'm gonna kind of shut up and let you enjoy it now. There's another really great guest next week, um, but until then, please enjoy my conversation with Rufus Sound. Right, well, we'll start I guess with a with a question from my friend Sarah. I asked her if she okay. had any questions that she wanted to ask you. And uh, the, the first question she gave me was, if Rufus had to compare his moustache texture to a material, man-made or natural, what would it be?
0: Um, you can buy speciality um, scouring pads <laughs> that don't scratch um, non-stick pans. Um, And I think if you can... So basically, on those... You know those um, washing-up brushes where you pour the... uh, Where you pour the the liquid into into the handle? Yeah,
1: I really want one, and my girlfriend won't let us get one, and she won't explain why.
0: Well, I'm sorry for that, (laughs) because you're clearly trapped in a loveless relationship. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, the signs are there. Move on. Uh, (laughs) But... uh, yeah, they come with a green head, which is for uh, cast iron pots and pans, uh, and they come with a white head for non-stick pans. And if you could take that white stuff and make it slightly longer, that's vaguely, very vaguely what my moustache feels like, I would think.
1: Do you reckon you could use your moustache for that purpose in a, in a sort of emergency situation? <laughs>
0: There's only one way to find out. Wait <laughs> here. I'll be here in the kitchen if you need me. <laughs>
1: on a serious note, though, um, I did want to open by asking you what it felt like to get to speak to Peter Capaldi in the moments after he'd been announced as Doctor Who. Because I read somewhere that you were, you sort of shared a dressing room with him on the next Doctor Live show where he was announced as the Doctor. Is that right?
0: No, that's, um, unfortunately, it's all utterly false. Oh, some nonsense um, that... Yeah, um, the, I, I think the, the, the conflation there is that, um, and I have told this story before, so I apologise to your listeners who've heard it more than once, but um, I have been chums with uh, a fellow called Peter Eccleston, who is I have read this Eccleston. story
1: before as well, but I, I do want to hear yeah. it from the horse's mouth. <laughs> uh, who is Christopher Eccleston's
0: cousin, and so on live television where I was already fairly excited because I was going to find out who the new Doctor was. Yeah, so this is, sorry, um, for the
1: listeners that are not up to speed, this is on the next Doctor Live uh, show where they announced Peter Capaldi in a sort of bizarre Stars in the Eyes style unveiling <laughs> um, on yeah. a Sunday evening.
0: Yeah. Um, and there was much speculation about who it was going to be. Um, Anyway, I referred to Christopher Eccleston as Peter Eccleston just as a sort of mental glitch really, but it has led to no end of people speculating that I knew it was going to be Peter Capaldi and it was a slip <laughs> up and it, this is, you know, this shows that it was known and people behind the scenes knew and now evidently you're reading things that seem to suggest that I uh, even shared a dressing room with him. <laughs> it's it is none of this is the case. Um I, I didn't know it was genuinely a mental slip-up. One of two that I made that night that has seen me roundly pilloried uh, in the community of Doctor Who fans whose um, association with true fandom is the accumulation of trivia. Well, um, I, saw, yeah, I I was going to
1: say, because I saw, I, I saw a blog post you'd made around the time, like maybe on the evening or the following day, sort of yeah. um, accounting for your slip-ups and it just made <laughs> yeah. me as a doctor who fan obviously I'm a very dedicated doctor who fan as you can tell by the fact that I've got this podcast that's accumulated more than 100 episodes but yeah. I I just felt sad reading it I just thought gosh is is this the way we come across that somebody feels the need to apologize so profusely on their blog I just made, it just made me feel like gutted that that's the way that doctor who fans are kind of seen by the wider world Ah
0: oh, well I would I would at least defend Dr Who fans from what what maybe felt like me apologizing to them I think it's it's more that from my own point of view at that point especially I myself was such a big Dr Who fan that I felt like to an extent my presence on that show I was there as on some low level a bit of a representative of somebody for whom Dr Who really mattered mm. and to that end getting that kind of stuff wrong would have annoyed me if I'd have been sat at home watching it so sure, the frustration I, yeah. was as much self-directed as it was you know like outwardly oh god yeah. you people are all having a go at me <laughs> it was like no I'm having a go at myself <laughs> internally uh, and, yeah. and uh, you know it was a kind of mea culpa to my to myself as much as to anyone else but um yeah, it it was more the bullshit that accompanied it. Oh, sorry. Is this a family-friendly podcast? Should I avoid? No, swearing it's okay. Where you
1: you can swear. I gave up on that a long time ago.
0: Very good. Um. Yeah. The 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 nonsense that accompanies that. Uh. You know, when you take even half a step back from a lot of that, it just seems like the nonsense it really is. But in the moment, it felt oh, maybe I, a little more um pressed than it does. You know, some whatever it is six years
1: later or what have you. I can imagine. I can imagine. I, I suppose it does seem because you weren't kind of officially associated with the program at that point because you hadn't you hadn't appeared in the show yet so i suppose you no. must have felt like you were kind of proving yourself as worthy of being on that next doctor live lineup with with those other people who had more of a clear association with doctor who maybe
0: yeah i think that's exactly right um and not that, uh, you,
1: not that you should have felt like that or or yeah deserved to feel like that but it's inevitable I
0: suppose. <laughs> um yeah, I, I think it's just that having having myself been a fan of things, when there are shows and it just feels like they rounded up a load of celebs to talk about it rather than, like, actual fans, I myself find that really annoying and I feel patronised as a fan more than I feel... Like, ultimately, if, if I love... Um, The Good Place, for example, the sitcom The Good Place. And instead of there being someone on a show that is discussing how great The Good Place is, there is just a comedian who happens to be flavour of the moment who has watched two episodes and says, yeah, I think it's really good. Then I'm like... Fuck you! (laughs) I've watched all of those episodes repeatedly. I've listened to all of the podcasts. I follow all of those actors on Twitter. I um, have watched Mike Shure talk about it in intimate detail online. Um, I have uh, read up on the philosophers that that show references. And now... Just because somebody happened to have a Netflix special that was big six weeks ago, they get to be on TV. And the the sum total of their wisdom about it is, yeah, I think it's good. Just like, ah, I've dedicated hours of my life to liking this and your insight into it means nothing. I find that really annoying. Yeah, I I think that's
1: a familiar frustration with kind of behind-the-scenes content in general for me, actually, is that often you'll get this kind of uh, meaningless, empty... These meaningless kind of empty platitudes about the whatever they're talking about. And it feels like, oh, I mean, who's this serving? Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah, because I... I mean, to an extent, Mo, you know, I think we can be fairly... Uh, honest about this I'm, I'm kind of bored of living in a world where everyone's lying to you you know I had my reservations about being on your podcast because truth be told over the last few years and this is no real judgement on the show per se but my interests have wandered slightly mm. and my memory certainly isn't what it used to be mainly thanks to a combination of you know other things happening in my life and heavy drinking um, <laughs> it means that I don't have all of the show titles at my disposal, all the actors at my disposal when it comes to Doctor Who. So I was sort of saying to you, look, you know, I'll happily be on your podcast, but in terms of it being any kind of fan service, uh, I don't know that I have anything to say that people would particularly want to listen to. Well, um, Interesting. Precisely... Precisely because when I listen to these sorts of things about things I do love mm. um and no one and it's somebody on there that doesn't really have anything to say about it i I just find it tedious and and kind of pointless
1: <laughs> well hopefully this won't be tedious and pointless
0: well, hopefully not, but you know can we, can we make that kind of guarantee
1: <laughs> well it it just it was interesting to me that when you when you kind of um gave me that caveat the two shows that you mentioned been more into in the last few years were The Good Place and Rick and Morty, two shows that I feel are not too far flung from Doctor Who in their kind of ethos and uh, feel, do you know what I mean? I mean, Rick and Morty, obviously a lot more adult than Doctor Who and has this kind of very tumultuous relationship with its fan base, you know, it's very controversial fan base and The Good Place is obviously a more straightforward sitcom, but I feel that there's a lot of similarities to be drawn there in terms of the the narrative possibilities that both those shows provide.
0: Um well I mean look you we've started off talking about Doctor Who live and I think on that show uh what I say is that the thing I adore about Doctor Who is it places issues in abstract meaning that you can reflect on them as a branch of philosophy or as a, you know you can reflect on the central idea of something like racism or fascism or nationalism or fear you know whatever it is in abstract whereas if you're dealing with a drama that's set in the real world it's very hard to just say talk about fascism without necessarily needing to bring in you know the experience of jewish people specifically you know if we're talking about the a story that involved nazism um so therefore you can't really think of it in abstract because there are just too many stakeholders in, in talking about that idea at that time in that context, in what was going on. Whereas by saying in a far-flung planet, you know, millions of years away, <laughs> um, you can maybe talk about racism, uh, you know, as an idea and yeah, in the same
1: uh, way that in the good place it's set in this other realm in the afterlife and in rick and morty you're they're, they're accessing these other alternative realities or these other planets and it's it's a, the the possibility for allegory there is that huge.
0: that's it yeah and i mean what the good place does is it very specifically talks about uh ethical philosophy and what Rick and Morty is able to do is talk about a whole bunch of things, Mm. Um, not specifically ethical philosophy. I mean, you know, The Good Place is a deep dive on ethical philosophy um, through the prism of American Network's situation comedy. And Rick and Morty basically is a kind of punk, (laughs) like (laughs) punk version of Doctor Who, I think in lots of ways. Um, And I love it for that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting me there what you said as well about that doctor who's inability sometimes to engage with real life versions of things like rati- racism and fascism because i think sometimes yeah that's when the show starts to stumble is when it is when it comes into contact with kind of real real life historical events and you and you're kind of bound by the history and and yeah the doctor's forced into this weird place where he or she is is kind of unable to act in the way they usually are. Do you know what I mean? I think we've faced that a little bit over the last couple of years as the show tried to deal with these, admirably tried to deal with these real historical events.
0: It's very tricky, isn't it? Because, of course, at its genesis, Doctor Who was kind of the horrible histories of its day. Mm. (laughs) You know, like, here's a show for kids that uh, will um, take... The current chutzpah around space and space travel and all of those things, and are there people from other planets, um, and be a way in which we can talk about history and get them excited about history. And, and it was a relatively straightforward idea that, um, obviously, as it went on, it, it, its scope became much wider. Um, but the real, the ultimate problem, of course, is that if you have a hero as the Doctor is undoubtedly a hero, but you also have them interacting, not just with, hey kids, here's what happened in Roman times. Hey kids, here's what happened in caveman times. And you have, hey kids, here's Hitler. Well, then the question has to be asked of your hero. Why the fuck wouldn't you kill Hitler? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I mean,
1: mean, there's a Doctor Who story, Let's Kill Hitler, which deals with that wonderfully by kind of uh, skewering Hitler and making him into this kind of comedy character. And then Stephen Moffat literally puts Hitler in the cupboard, which is just so brilliant a way to deal with that shadow that he has over that episode.
0: Yeah, although, I mean, really, I mean, funny enough, actually, this is one of the great ways in which it parallels Rick and Morty, is that I think sometimes, what, to me, what's brilliant about that episode is it's Stephen Moffat talking about the business of making Doctor Who. It is a script note, that, because ultimately, the question is always going to be asked, well, if Do- if the Doctor's such a great hero, why wouldn't he kill Hitler? And And it is... Moffat parodying the business of like yeah because you can't right so stop fucking asking (laughs) because obviously you can't do that so anytime you're going to get hung up on that question you are asking the wrong question it shows that you don't understand what this show is there are lots of very good reasons that you can't do that but he's not talking about Hitler he isn't talking about fascism he's talking about writing and making Doctor Who for sure and Rick and Morty does that a lot as well which is Uh, in the most recent season there's um, a whole episode set on a story train um, or or rather set on a train and the whole thing is about script writing the whole thing is about a story wheel and the story wheel is a device that Dan Harmon the writer famously has used um, to talk about how you generate engaging stories but in the same way that Rick and Morty on the train are victims of their own rick and mortiness <laughs> that is really Dan Harmon writing about being bound to the story wheel I- i.e. his dan harmonness <laughs> so there is a way in which ultimately when you get really when you start getting you know I'm um, the um image that springs to mind, you know, is the doctor underneath that TARDIS console yanking bits out. Once you are the writer yanking bits out from under the console of mm. the TARDIS or 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 your Rick underneath the the ship, you know, pulling bits apart or, you know, rewire it or, or you know, the um I'm just trying to think the the micro universe in the micro universe that is the engine of his ship. Sure. Um yeah. you know it's you you get to the point where you you kind of the there becomes a kind of quark underneath it all basically a thing that cannot be picked apart anymore And that is essentially, well, why even tell the story? You know, but what if, but what if, but why, but why, but why? Mm. And that you are eventually going to end to a finite point where the question you end up asking is, but why do any of it? Does life even matter? (laughs) Yeah, and and I I, I think... You can't mind that point for any more story. That is as small a particle as you're going to (laughs) get.
1: And shows like The Good Place, Rick and Morty, Doctor Who, are are kind of prone to that kind of... uh, over analysis more than yeah. other shows, because they have such possibility of uh, storytelling and adventure aren 't they well, other well, shows I'm, are more uh, bound by their own rules, whereas Doctor who anything 's possible
0: yeah I, look, they are asking to en- they're asking their audience to engage with their stories in a fairly cerebral way, and when you 're talking to what you hope to be you know intelligent and imaginative people um it is unsurprising that the intelligent and imaginative people making it feel like they're on some level, at the very least, talking to their peers. And they know that if they were sat at home watching the show, there are certain questions that they would want answered. And they feel that that's probably the same questions that the people who love the show ask. Um, would want answers too. And so to an extent, there it becomes a situation where they are making the show for themselves. It all becomes one big feedback loop. And what do we know about feedback loops? Is that after a while, the sound is deafening and nobody can do anything while that yeah. sound is ringing out. So there is a degree to which the, the, yeah. shows, which shows with the highest ideals will ultimately always eat themselves.
1: The, the image that's springing to mind there for me is Peter Capaldi punching the... Uh, the wall of diamond in Heaven Sent, which famously is Stephen Moffat yeah. kind of punching through his own script and, yeah, just kind of sending himself mad. And, yeah, I just love that image. Um, it's so yeah. so fantastic. You touched on something there uh, a little earlier on about Doctor Who being the horrible histories um, of its day. And, and this was something I was meaning to touch on with you because you've made stuff for both grown-ups and children and you've kind of crossed that bridge what do you think yeah. it is that kind of yeah what do you think it is in it in a work that that makes it bridge that gap what how is doctor who bridging that gap and yeah what can what insight can you offer there? um that wasn't really a question but i wonder not believe yeah you
0: <laughs> <laughs> no look i i feel you you know you give a pretty good flavor of where you're pointing um I would say, you know, I have I the stuff I make for grown-ups uh, has tended ah uh, oh, look I mean again, it's a bit tricky because I, 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 I then am about to do exactly the same thing, you know, of eating my own tail. Um I would say that the stuff I have been in charge of making or the stuff that I've had most sway over making has tended to be for adults and the stuff I've been lucky enough to be involved with making for children, I've had some minor sway in. Um, but it, it it was never really particularly that the buck stopped with me. Sure. And, uh, but but what I would say is, what is true of the work I am proudest of is that they both are asking questions. The stuff that you know I made for kids uh, was you know what nearly ten years ago now in the shape of Hounded. Mm. And that was as close as I ever thought I would get to being the Doctor. <laughs> so when I was, um, I, the, the story of that coming to being was that there was a pilot being made for BBC Three. I helped them out with the pilot. The idea of that pilot uh, was it was a CG sketch show and that each episode would feature a face from BBC Three running through a series of repeating sketches. And that each episode, those repeating sketches would change slightly each time Depending on which face of BBC Three was running through them, right? Super high concept, um, somewhat conceived by the filmmaker Ben Wheatley, who um, oh, who later worked made... on Doctor Who. Uh, yes, exactly. So, uh, as well as you know, Kill List and High Rise and and uh, in fact, yeah. he had a thing out a couple of Christmases ago, which I would also urge people to watch, which is fantastic. Although I can't recall the name of it off the top of my head now. Something like Mr. Bungle's Christmas or something oh, like that. Oh, I haven't like heard Mr. of that. I saw
1: a film of his called Free Fire about three or four years ago. That's really good. Um, as yeah, well. he's, it's great. He's great, yeah.
0: Yeah, I saw him. I saw that uh, and he did a Q&A while I was working up in Leicester. Um, oh. Uh, and because I'd worked on um, the the Wrong Door pilot years ago, uh, mm. we had a couple of beers afterwards. He's a smashing fellow. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, where was I going with this? Uh, basically, you were yeah, talking about handed. I, I, yes. I made that pilot. Um, it was for a thing on BBC Three. BBC Three commissioned it, but they said they wanted it to be something else. They didn't need this face of BBC Three running through each episode. But the BBC internally showed that pilot to say, "Hey, look, this is the kind of brilliant new stuff that we're working on." And somebody from Children's BBC saw that pilot and approached the makers of that pilot and said, "Could I have that show?" And they said, well, we, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, that thing like Rufus just running through all these weird and wonderful worlds. And so I got this total out of the blue phone call from the producer who who is now weirdly one of the producers on Horrible Histories <laughs> um, uh, uh, who said, um, do you want to make that a, a kind of version of that pilot for Children's BBC? And we sat down and chewed over what I would love it to be And I said, you know, look, if it's time travel and him falling through parallel worlds. uh, We talked a lot about Quantum Leap, unsurprisingly, Mm. and Doctor Who, and then, you know, making that relevant for kids. Um, There's a sense
1: there for me with with CBBC that they kind of get that kids will just get on board with stuff because that reminds me of a a show like The Sarah Jane Adventures where kids were given mm. this character in Elizabeth Sladen who their parents knew but they they wouldn't necessarily have had an immediate connection with and kind of i guess you were similar in that respect in that up until that point you'd mainly worked on stuff for grown-ups so the kids wouldn't yeah. have necessarily had a great knowledge of you or do you know what i mean and yet they're they're presented with this character and he's yeah. and he's a fictionalized version of you but they just get on board with it
0: yeah i mean i
1: really there's a trust uh, of kids there right
0: i yeah i i truly believe that when you're a kid, the world already doesn't make sense. So when something that you might not understand is presented to you, you just go, "Oh, cool." This I, I I've I, I go through this all the time. Basically, I just keep nodding and smiling until eventually it clicks. Um, and and that's absolutely how I was when I was a kid. I mean, I would imagine Molly. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but I would imagine I have a few years on you. I grew up um, where there were only four television channels. And Children's BBC was a thing that happened for like an hour and a half every day from, I think, 3.30. And the cartoons that were on were things like Cities of Gold and Ulysses and Jason the Wild Warriors, which were Japanese cartoons or French cartoons sometimes, redubbed. And they were so obtuse like the the mythos, the backstory, the fact that they were kind of like an ongoing drama with all of this extra stuff, if you missed one, you had no idea what was going on. I'm sure they I mean, played you couldn't half watch of it again of back order. Then they were endlessly either. repeated, yeah, that's it, no watch again, no repeat value to it at all. I mean, you know, I've just worked on another um show for very young children called um Waffle the Wonder Dog, and you know there is kind of a narrative arc over the two series. But the people writing it know that every show has to stand alone on its own merits mm. because you, you can't really tell a story over the course of a season uh, because kids are going to watch these in any sequence they want as and when it's repeated, you know possibly months, years or minutes away from each other. There is no plan for how you're going to sit and watch that. So, yeah, I mean, these weird TV shows I watched growing up, 80 Days Around the World with Willy Fogg, you know, that obviously has a narrative arc, but I don't know that anybody ever sat down and watched it religiously to know, oh, and next week it's going to be this, and next week, you know, followed it or knew what was going Mm. on. Every episode was just kind of like a, a random chapter. It was like somebody, you know pulling a random book off a random shelf in a library and reading you a chapter and then the next week you'd come back and they'd go, I think the book was somewhere around here. <laughs> and just pulling another book down and reading another chapter, you go, Yeah, this is vaguely holding together as a story, I think. <laughs>
1: Did you have a, a, a strong relationship with Doctor Who as a kid then? Was that something that you that you watched at all or or not?
0: No, really not. Um it, it it wasn't something I particularly liked. It was something that was on that I didn't get and it made me frankly feel slightly uneasy um, and I never really engaged with I think you know by the point I was maybe old enough to kind of be into it it was uh, you know the the sharp cold Colin Baker Doctor leading on to the weirdo uh, Sylvester McCoy Doctor mm. <laughs> and I think that any time I dipped into it it just didn't feel like a show that I wanted to watch and, and you know by that point I could watch TV comedy. So there were things like, you know, Mork and Mindy would have been on at that time and uh, things like the Britas Empire. And they just felt a lot cozier and easier and, and I liked them more. <laughs> um, Doctor, uh, there was nobody in my family who was a Doctor Who fan. I don't think I went to school with anyone who was a particular Doctor Who fan. So there was no real way in. There, nobody really recommending it.
1: And, yeah, there was uh, something spiky I think. I mean not that I was there, but there was something spiky I think about the late 80s version of Doctor Who. And we can, you know, we can look back on it as fans and appreciate things about Colin Baker's stories and Sylvester McCoy's stories p- particularly. But I think yeah. at the time it must have felt quite um yeah, difficult to engage with.
0: Yeah, I mean the weird thing is knowing now a little bit more about Doctor Who and that era of Doctor Who is I think by the time Matt Smith was stepping down by the time actually Peter Capaldi uh, was running you know the clock out I-, I was thinking like why isn't there a cruel doctor why mm. isn't there a doctor who's just over it why isn't there a doctor who's done with your bullshit why isn't there that guy and that is you know very clearly what they were trying to do with that Colin Baker doctor and I think you know that rightly has a place in uh in, in the Hooniverse, but then why you would have that character and give him that, you know, multicoloured uh, frock coat and, you know, make him look like, I'm trying to think who he looks like, I always think Colin Baker, there's, there's like a muscly, like <laughs> Greek God, I think in a comic.
1: I was going to say I don't think Like a toga bound, be, like a toga bound pretty kind. boy. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have used the word muscly to describe Colin Baker. No,
0: it, there's. I'm just trying think. There's like a camp narcissist that's dressed in a toga, who 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 doesn't really say anything, but he's just content with everybody loving him. I think that's you know Colin Baker was really a very pretty man, but <laughs> they. I don't know the the styling of all of that and the and the coolness and the cruelty of it, the assuredness of it. It just all, all of it just seemed jangly, and and that it didn't quite add up. I mean, again, I could watch those now and maybe get a great deal from it, but I, I certainly remember that was my feeling about yeah. it as a kid. I, I'm not sure. Was sure. Like, Ugh, yeah. I don't like this. It doesn't make me feel nice. <laughs> my listeners
1: know that I'm not the the biggest Colin Baker fan. I am a big Sylvester McCoy fan, though, and I think one of the great things about him is that he's—he's he's a comedian who's being asked yeah. to step into this, you know, semi-dramatic role, and I think Doctor Who's got a weird. I wanted to hear your take on this because I think Doctor Who's got a weird history with putting comedians in its central cast and casting g- comic actors in unexpected ways. I'm thinking of people like Catherine Tate and more recently Bradley Walsh and Matt Lucas and these people that you'd, that you'd kind of, uh, as a fan, cringe at the castings of because they're known for, their, for broad comedy. And then you, you see them and you think, wow, what an inspired casting choice um, that was. Um, I I contributed
0: to a book of horror stories written by comedians called Dead Funny. There were two volumes of it, and I was lucky enough to be in both. Um, edited by a brilliant fellow called Johnny Maines. and his feeling about that project—he's he, a huge uh, like a, a a real horror aficionado. Mm. Um, but his feeling was that there were a lot of comedians who were informed by horror, and when you read some of those stories, you can really see, like, oh, yeah. When you write jokes, you're basically often dealing with something quite conceptual. And then...
1: Or something uncanny, maybe.
0: Yeah, 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 quite so. Something unsettling. and Basically, you're wrestling with an idea. And and then when you're, as a comedian, wrestling with that idea, you're wrestling it into, then it will make people laugh. Whereas um, with... Uh, horror you're wrestling it into well how do I make people feel shocked or mm. upset or dis- uncomfortable about this but at it's core what you're what you're really doing is becoming a concept wrestler
1: for sure um,
0: and I think that the same can be said of um, comedians in Doctor Who in that because Doctor Who is so conceptual if you employ great concept wrestlers and say yeah but you know, you're not trying to pin it into the laugh, you're trying to pin it into this different place, then the genius of getting that right is that you find people who actually can pin it one way and another way. Um, and so that you can have somebody like Bradley Walsh, who can absolutely finish, you know, his B plot or his C plot to generate a laugh, or you bring him into the A plot and you suddenly find it intensely moving. And, and always what is true um in my experience is we are moved when we see characters who we know have three dimensions be moved mm. whereas if you just have a character who is always the hero and then at the end of it there they are looking heroic again we just don't really feel very much about that cuz we're like well duh, duh. you know <laughs> like obviously that was going to be the outcome that's always the outcome it's where there's that light and shade and maybe somebody that we think of as being more of a clown suddenly is required to be the hero, mm. um, or somebody that we always think of as being very jolly is now very sad, um, the emotional difference between those two states is just more pronounced because it is Definitely. essentially a further journey. You know,
1: Yeah, and Doctor Who knows how to play on that. There's something incredibly moving about watching someone like Catherine Tate burst into tears at the end of her second story when all you would yeah. seen her do before was, was kind of be a slightly toned-down character from the Catherine Tate show. And that's yeah. yeah it's something there's something so moving about that. And even Matt Lucas, who, you know, it took a while in his time at Doctor Who for him to, for his character to be fleshed out. You know, at first he at first he was very broad, but by the end of the season, he's saying goodbye to the Doctor, and you, yeah, it's hard to keep the tears keep the tears away because, yeah, because he's just grown into this character that we love.
0: I I really felt ever so sad that. Um uh it was naboo wasn't
1: it nardol
0: nardol who am I? is th- naboo naboo anyway. is the
1: is the planet uh from star wars that queen Amidala is queen of
0: ah yes thank and you and he's also <laughs>
1: uh it's also the the character in the mighty Boosh who owns the the shop
0: ah yes maybe that's where i'm getting fixed <laughs> up well done though great naboo knowledge um uh yeah I I thought the it was it was one of the great shames that we lost Nardole and Pearl. Um, mm. sorry Pearl Mackie's the actor obviously. Uh Bill um Bill um uh yeah I, I I thought it was a great shame that we lost them as companions uh when when um Capaldi stepped down. Mm. I really rated them. I thought they brought a, a huge amount
1: to it. It was a great dynamic that season for sure. Um, to have those those three all together Um, yeah yeah in in the TARDIS so in 2015 you appear in Doctor Who I do how does that happen and what is it like and yeah how does that come about and and yeah what's your experience of it like Um, I don't know why I phrased that question in the in the present tense I I felt like it gave it some kind of uh intrigue and excitement
0: (laughs) some pep and urgency Um, (laughs) um, so how does that come about Um, essentially as a performer I had largely been doing stand up uh, on the open mic circuit uh, got a job working for the BBC doing presenting for largely music television Um, from that profile somebody asked me to do a pilot for a show that was going to be on Dave and then once I was on that show on Dave, working with brilliant, proper stand-ups, I then started getting booked on the kind of work that people who'd spent years beavering away, going to Edinburgh, writing you know whole hours of stand-up and whatever, had done. But that wasn't me. I was a guy that had worked at the Science Museum, worked mainly on the open mic circuit, um, and largely just done a lot of comparing and presenting whilst working at the Science Museum, also during the day presenting science shows for kids, Um, the work I'd done on the open mic circuit had got me an agent and then this agent put me forward for various bits of TV work so um, that journey then kind of put me front and centre for panel show stuff essentially and that was really my bread and butter I would go out and work live stand-up shows mainly as the compere in the evening and then increasingly got on different panel-y bits and pieces the one that then became biggest that I was on was Celebrity Juice. And uh, without going into the whole story of why, because I've told that story before, not because of any other reason, but you know, I just don't really feel a great deal about it anymore, so raking over it feels a bit pointless. But ultimately, after a number of years there, I felt quite let down by the people that made that show. And it all came to a head when the producer rang me and said, I'm having to edit round you. You know, this is a big, fun, funny show and you look like you don't want to be there. And I said to him, well, I don't want to be there. (laughs) That's that's the nuts and bolts of it. By this point, I'd made Hounded and really enjoyed that experience. Mm. And um, over the course of that summer, had made a movie called The Wedding Video. And the director of that had really backed me from... For no real reason. And at the end of it, it took me to one side and he said, I think you're a great actor. But no one will ever know that you're a great actor for as long as you do all this other panel show stuff. So the combination of that, um, of that conversation mixed with feeling very let down by Celebrity Juice just meant that kind of push came to shove and I suddenly was off Celebrity Juice. And... That coincided with my agent employing a new chapter work there called David Lazenby, who had joined this agency that largely specialised in you know, TV and radio and kind of mainstream entertainment stuff. Um, and he came from a theatrical background and an acting background. And so when my agent said, look, you might want to ease off the TV stuff just for a little while, you know, of having left juice... Um, He kind of stepped forward and went, well, look, I've got some acting contacts. You've just done Hounded. You've done this movie. Do you want me to pursue that for you? And I was like, mate, if you think I can crack acting, I mean, my God, that's totally that's all I wanted to do from when I was three to when I was 19. It was only at 19 not having the money to go to drama school and thinking it was sort of, you know, I dreamt the impossible dream. And now it was time to grow up that stopped me from really pursuing it. If you think you can get me in on more of that, then please, for the love of God, let's go that way. And so I started doing plays and theatre and that started taking off. And basically from that first conversation of, do you want me to really push you more that way? He said, so where's this going? What, what are we trying to get to here? And all I ever said to him is, I want to be on Doctor Who. <laughs> and Andy Pryor, who casts Doctor Who, then received a number of phone calls over a number of years from my agent pushing (laughs) me for various things and each time would say to my agent, essentially, fuck off. (laughs) Um, I am a very reputable casting agent and I cast reputable actors in big television programmes. Why you think I would want some panel show twonk who's decided to give acting a go (laughs) in one of the biggest shows on television is beyond me Please stop calling me. Stop bothering me. It's never going to happen. And then, dot, dot, dot. Part of the reason that Andy Pryor was the casting director on uh, Doctor Who is that he'd worked for a number of years very closely with Russell T Davies. Sure. And and I'd met Russell when him and Benjamin Cook, who I know is a friend of the podcast. Yeah. um, uh, Were promoting their book. On Richard and Judy. That was one of the presenting gigs I had. Was a sort of third hand on one on a couple of their T V shows. Mm. Um and I've met Russell and obviously basically, you know, fanboyed at him <laughs> for ten minutes going, Oh my god, oh my god, like what you've done is so brilliant. And I was never really a big <laughs> fan of Doctor Who. And like uh, um Uh, obviously proving exactly what we were talking about earlier how my brain goes blank when required to recall facts but um, Bob and Rose uh, had been a really meaningful TV Mm -hmm. show for me growing up and the second coming was just blew my fucking mind so it was really that I was a Russell T Davies fan More than I'd been a Doctor Who fan, but everything he'd done with Doctor Who and the other people who were into it, like Mark Gatiss, and then I'd started reading some of the novelizations and some of the Douglas Adams stuff, and was like, oh my god, there are so many people that I love who love this, and it all makes sense now. And I, you know, was really swept up in it. Um, And so Russell was, as Russell is, like unbearably lovely, and thoughtful, Mm. and kind, and decent. And when he'd gone off and written Cucumber, had written a character where, that he'd said, oh, well, this guy is basically Rufus Hound. And so then he got in contact with his casting director, who was Andy <laughs> Pryor, <laughs> and said, I'd really like you to get Rufus Hound in on this. That's and so Andy funny. Pryor at that stage, said to Russell T Davies, I'm not fucking casting Rufus Hound. <laughs> it's bad enough as it is I get his agent phoning me every time Doctor Who fires back up, asking me to put him in that. I'm certainly not going to put him in some, <laughs> some reputable Channel 4 drama that's got, you know, nothing to do with any of it. For fuck's sake, Russell, no. And Russell seemingly basically said to him, no, I really want Rufus Hound to do it. And Andy Pryor only agreed to even see me on the grounds that he could then put other people forward as well uh, for the part that Russell had in inverted commas written for me. And I only can tell this story, ultimately, because what then happened was I did go in to see Andy Pryor, I did audition for the part that Russell had written for me, and I got a phone call literally, I think, either the next day or two days after, And it was my agent um, who almost, you know, with a quavering voice said, so I've just got off the phone from Andy Pryor about the cucumber job. And he said that the role is yours. And I'm like punching the air at this point because so I'm like, holy shit, that is a really good gig. That is a reputable gig. That's Russell T Davies. I get to say words written by Russell T Davies on a on a real proper like meaty channel. F- oh my god, this is so great. This is so bloody great. And then my agent said, no, 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 that's not really why I'm ringing you. <laughs> I'm like, what? This is this is good enough. This tops out. He said, no, no, that's not why I'm ringing you. I'm ringing you to say that Andy Pryor phoned to say the job is yours and more than that he's sorry because he wrote you off as being some panel show twat and he saw the audition and he totally got that you can do this and so there will be a part coming up in the next season of Doctor Who and it will be a part that is your part and he doesn't know what that is yet But there is definitely going to be something in there that he now knows you will be right for. And so you will be being offered a part in Doctor Who. And Andy Pryor himself wanted me to tell you that is because he is sorry to have judged you and judged you wrong. Crikey. That must have been an
1: exciting phone call.
0: Well, I just basically broke down, you know, because because when you do this as a job, you know, uh, being an actor is a machine to make... Any human being alive into an insecure wreck. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is backing yourself and your ability to be able to do something, but deep down, you don't really know if you can do it. You don't really know if what's going on in your head that you're trying to make emotionally um, resonate with other people comes across or, or whether it works. You're only ever taking a swing and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. And for sure. Don't get me wrong, the more you do it, the better you hope you are getting at doing it but you don't really know you know I guarantee you could talk to Olivia Coleman tomorrow and say to her so you're uh you're one of the best actors in the world are you you win Oscars and that's how good an actor is so so come on then how come you're such a great actor there would be no part of her that would go oh well I'll tell you how that if if you put the question to her yeah, like that she yeah. would go well, don't fucking ask me i i, I never said that <laughs> that's that, i'm just i'm just trying yeah. my best over here you know which is
1: pretty you, much what her oscar acceptance speech was actually
0: yeah because what else can you say
1: for sure because
0: everything else is a lie everything else mm. is a total fabrication you are just trying your best at all times in all ways for all things so to have at that phone call where the casting director of something that I had loved and, and seen so many endlessly brilliant performers and brilliant performances on and so many great actors who'd been involved in it and stories that had moved me. Um, you know, Silence in the Library had been a story that had literally I'd watched on my own on a laptop in a, in a, in a hotel room in Birmingham on a drizzly grey afternoon. And and literally like like a child like an eight year old child had jumped up and down and banged the table in front of me, crying, shouting at the screen. It had you know it had got a grip of me that much, and the guy that cast the actors in that show had said, you know, you're good enough, you can do this, it was overwhelming. Um, and so ultimately, that is how that came about. And then, <laughs> and then when I, you know, read the, the the script for the part of Sam Swift, and I'm like, oh, I see. <laughs> this guy basically does stand up comedy on the gallows whilst waiting to be hung. <laughs> Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, I can, Maybe I can do it, but maybe at the same time, Andy Pryor's not like, yeah, I think this kid could play Hamlet. <laughs> He's going, <there. laughs> I need him to play a swaggering, cocksure, idiot, stand-up comic, essentially. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, no, fair enough. That probably is a part I could play.
1: <laughs> but one that has a kind of um, weird amount of narrative significance in that story as well.
0: Yeah, a weird amount of narrative significance and actually, you know, does get to change gear. Mm. And, and have an emotional shift and, and live forever I, potentially well that's the hope right because yeah. because if if, if that um, chip that gets implanted in him brings him back from the dead then it that that is an immortality chip but it, if you had that chip it would make you immortal if you weren't already dead. Because Sam was already dead, maybe that power gets kind of used up to bring him back to life. Maybe. So it isn't that he would be immortal. It would be that he would age, but he would just live for a very long time. He gets a second chance. And I make this point because if he's not immortal and if he could age, then that means that as a mortal who ages... If they ever decide to bring him back, <laughs> then I would still be in line <laughs> to play him. And I pray that the people who make that television program hear this podcast and remember my very, very <laughs> wise words.
1: So, what what was it like then working? Because obviously, you worked um, with Russell executive executive producing you in Cucumber, and yeah. then with Stephen Moffat as the executive producer on Doctor Who. What was it? How do their approaches differ? And how did it did those two obviously it's kind of um a difficult question because Cucumber's a totally different show to Doctor Who but what was it like working with those two creative figures and how did they differ
0: um I mean it it isn't really a question I can answer because Mm. Russell came to the set when I was there on Cucumber and was very hands-on and I think that's very much his style whereas the days I spent in Cardiff filming on Doctor Who were not days that Stephen was around. Mm. Now, I'm very fortunate to be friends with Sophia Miles, who, uh, you know, was uh, Lady Pompadour, is it? The girl in the fireplace? For sure. Or, yeah. Um, and she has quite a, a close relationship with Stephen Moffat, so she could absolutely answer that. I understand him to be a tremendous fellow, um, but this is not something I've really had very much to do with at all. Mm. Um Whereas uh Russell you know was around with words of encouragement and advice and and still even now occasionally texts me, uh when I'm on Countdown doing poems or what have you or or I'm on a quiz that he's enjoyed. So um that would I would say essentially be my uh, experience of the difference between those two, is that um. Sure. Russell is somebody I cannot believe I get to be even vaguely friends with. Uh-huh. Uh whereas Stephen just remains a, a, a man that I am impressed with the work of.
1: Yeah. I've met Russell um and Stephen once at a at a book signing and I got to show Russell my tattoo of the TARDIS that is based on a drawing of his from um, oh, nice. from a book from a couple of years ago. So that was nice. Um, yeah he great. seemed flattered by the fact that I had his drawing permanently imprinted on my, my skin. Yeah, have you got a, Do- a Doctor Who tattoo, Rufus, or is that, um, is that a myth also? Uh,
0: no, it's it's sort of a Doctor Who tattoo. Um, on my left arm I have a tattoo called Monkeys Versus Robots which uh, is an analogy uh, I came up with um, 15 odd years ago to describe part of the discomfort I feel about the modern world that We have an evolved psychology, therefore we are essentially monkeys, you know, simians, mammals, call it what you will. Um, And the modern world is all computers. So Mm -hmm. if you phone... If I have a problem with my um, gas, say, my gas supply, I get on my phone and then... Chances are a computer at the other end asks me for my unique customer identification number. Well, at that point, I am now merely the meat conduit between um, the problem as it exists. Meat conduit
1: is a great band name. (laughs) I'm putting that in the list.
0: Yeah, please do. Yeah. And and have it with my blessing. Um, But I'm essentially a meat conduit that allows machines to do what they need to do to make the thing work. Um I the the other analogy I've sometimes come up with is like a hundred years ago, the idea that you could walk past a shop window that maybe say had apples in the window mm. um and then walk into the shop and say, Hello, I'd like to buy some of the apples in your window the idea a hundred years ago that the person the in that shop would on any level have said to you, No, you can't would have been ridiculous. I have money, you're a person, I'm a person, this is a shop, and there are apples in the window.
1: Sure. But
0: now, if those apples are part of a display or there isn't a a barcode on those apples that goes through the computer, well I'm sorry, we can't do that. You know, or or even just like the poster in the window. Hello, I'd like to put the poster in the window. No, we can't do that. Yeah, Why? No. Because you know, there's there's not a barcode for it, there isn't a system um. that's been bought in to, to make that happen. So no, you can't do it. Oh I'd like I'd like to buy 3 of these biscuits no that's not the offer. Well <laughs> well there's you, sort of you, a you,
1: double bind there though there's machines and then there's bureaucracy those are the two barriers.
0: Yeah between absolutely you and the but 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 the bureaucracy exists to make somebody who works in the biscuit shop do the thing do the thing that the system tells them they have to do mm. and the system has been designed to basically um remove the humanity from all of those transactions. This is what you have to do, and this is what you have to do. So yeah. we are systemized, whereas monkeys wouldn't stand for that. Monkeys would go, "Well, I want that," and well, I, they just uh, rip your face off, wouldn't they? Well, said they no. Exactly, no. and no. run away. Yeah. Um. But but that is the psychology we have. It should be that all of these things are possible. If I can think it, and you can think it, and we can talk, and we can understand each other, then there should be a way we bring about the thing that we both. Would like to happen. Maybe that's maybe the thing that we would like to happen is you would like to help me or you would like me to give you something for helping me. Um, And as upright thinking entities, we should be able to bring that about. But now, more often than not, because of the systems that surround us and the way that the computers force us to behave in order to meet the requirements of those systems, we are ultimately monkeys versus robots.
1: Is this, so, is this the spiel that your agent gave to Andy Pryor every time he, he called up for the, uh, the <laughs> um,
0: I mean, I did write it out for him, but whether Andy <laughs> heard it in full, I wouldn't like to say. <laughs> um, however, I, basically, I went to a tattoo artist, uh, tattoo artist while I was in LA, which sounds very grand. I've only been to LA a few times in my life, and this happened to be uh, a week that my uh, wife, my, before she was my wife. Um, was in Los Angeles and I was visiting her, and we were going to go to Las Vegas and get married a few days later, um, and I went to this tattoo artist and said, "Look, I just want a tattoo that is monkeys versus robots," and he went away and drew a thing up. So technically, of course, as we all know, uh, Daleks aren't robots. Um, they, you know, they are exo skeletons or whatever for a biological life form within, but. Uh, he mm. drew a thing that basically was a Dalek, and it also is a Dalek because it's shooting uh, a laser out of its eye stalk. Um, so you know, true fans would know that can't be a Dalek. But you know, if you show that to ninety nine point nine 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 percent of all people on Earth, they'll tell you that's a Dalek, and yeah. that's always rather how I felt about it too. Of course, should it have been a Cyberman, almost definitely. Mm. But even those are, even those have humans on the inside. So maybe yeah. not even that. Maybe should it should have it 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 been
1: K nine, maybe.
0: Well, yeah, but then K9 is, you know, benevolent, no? So, mm. th- you know, that wouldn't have worked either. But, um, yeah. yeah, anyway, some robot or other. But, yeah, to all intents and purposes, I do have Should a Should have been the Scovox Blitzer
1: from Series 8.
0: I was <laughs> waiting for you, Molly. I was waiting for you. I knew you'd find one eventually. And yeah. I'm delighted it was there.
1: <laughs> um, of course, your Doctor Who uh, career doesn't end with uh, The Woman Who Lived, you also went on to play The Monk in a range of audio adventures. Um, yeah. um for Big Finish. Uh yeah. what's that been like and how does it differ from doing telework and uh yeah, what's the experience of that been like for you?
0: Well I mean I I'm obviously I'm delighted to have been uh, in the television programme Doctor Who. But in lots of ways I'm actually kind of prouder of my of my work as the monk because there is obviously a very specific fan base for those stories of real die-hard fans, and look, if this sounds arrogant, then I can only apologise. It's certainly not how I feel about it or myself, but in this job, it's so rare that you can feel like you're allowed to take pride in things, that when you do feel proud of them, it's nice to be able to recognise that. And one of the things that is true is that my work as the monk in uh, Big Finish I've just never seen a bad review. And not only have I never seen a bad review, I've never seen anybody say anything other than, I bloody love him when he does this character. And, you know, please give us more. And I, I really like Rufus Sound playing the monk. And when you feel like you're playing for the fans, and the fans are super into it, there's kind of no better feeling than that, really. I, I, The more I've got to play him, the more I... I kind of understand the nuance of him. I've got to play him as a bit of a straighter character in some of the more recent stories. Mm. Um, and then also as a kind of comedic foil to Missy in a, in a bunch of stories by John yeah. Dorney, where it has been a complete joy to do. Did you get to, to
1: at face-to-face with Michelle Gomez or, or is it all remote?
0: So this movie that I referenced, uh, the wedding video that I made a number of years ago, uh, I worked with Michelle Gomez on that. So I have worked with Michelle Gomez, but actually because of her commitments uh, in Hollywood and and mm. the other things she's been doing whenever we've recorded those stories we've, we've actually recorded them separately um but then you know the brilliance of big finish is that uh, when you listen to them you would never know i mean it you know it sounds like we're on an actual set never mind in a sound yeah. booth even you know they they do a brilliant job of that is and, there and, and someone there you know, they, kind of
1: being Michelle Gomez
0: uh yeah there there has been several times and um and Uh, specifically on the first one uh look you know by this point hopefully everybody understands my capacity to recall names is absolutely (laughs) horrific and also um further admission i only got four hours sleep last night and today ice skating training and of uh, course
1: because you're on dancing on ice aren't you next year
0: i will be early in the new year so the training's already started on that so i got four hours sleep woke up went and did two hours of ice dance training, including an additional hour of like warm-up and exercises and stretches and all of that, got home, recorded a podcast about retro video games, sent a load of stuff off, did some editing, and now uh, I'm talking to you, or have been talking to you for the last hour. So, um, yeah, my brain is literally all over the place. But the, the woman that they got to stand in for Michelle Gomez on the first of those two uh, audio mm. adventures... Was absolutely remarkable. And uh, if I could compel you, Molly, to uh, email Big Finish and find that woman's name, I cannot recommend her more highly. She was sensational. You you closed your eyes, you would never have known in a million years that wasn't Michelle Gomez. Oh, fantastic. Uh, And it was a a joy to act against. But yeah, as I sit here now, uh, sadly, I can't remember that name.
1: Hello, everybody. Um, Molly from the future here. Just popping in um, to let you know that I did uh, contact Nick Briggs about this, uh, and the actor in question was Beth Chalmers, um, who some of you will know, I'm sure, from appearing in a range of other Big Finish audios. Bye, everybody. Would you like to? Um, um, would you like to play the monk on television? Is that a, an ambition?
0: Totally. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I. I I th- I really think I get who that is. And and you know there is some precedent within the who universe. Uh you know if if we can include Torchwood in the who then obviously Capaldi would then have appeared in Doctor Who with three separate guises, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so it is viable seemingly. That if I'd played Sam Swift, I could come back as the monk.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean maybe they met at some point, and Sam Swift kind of made an impression on the monk in some way.
0: Yeah, or, or but that's what I mean. Is like, you, do you have to on that, or is it enough just to go, no? Yeah, <laughs> you know, leave, do, leave
1: it to the audience to uh, to imagine it. Yeah, that's different guy, say.
0: you know, different time. It's fine, but uh, I, I I do think that there is you know the uh, the old adage all it takes for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing mm-hmm. i think um i think there is a, probably a good run of stories that that kind of involve the monk in that way to differentiate him from uh, you know missy or the master in that you know the master genuinely has a plan for dastardly world domination Whereas the monk is quite happy just to be very self-serving. And I think there is kind of a nuance you can bring in with the monk where he doesn't necessarily want bad things to happen. He just wants great things to happen for himself. Yeah. And Yeah.
1: If if you know if the master's Boris Johnson, the monk is Matt Hancock.
0: Well, I suppose this is more my point, really, is that I think if if the master's Boris Johnson then the monk is just people who vote conservative. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It's that, you know, they don't necessarily want the fascism that uh, undoubtedly Johnson is very happy to steer us all towards. Mm. But, you know, do they want their pension to be paid out? Yes. Do they want their house price to go down? No. Are they terrified of everything that the Daily Mail tells them to be? Probably. You know, yeah. it, 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 that's more where the monk sits. It's it's not that he necessarily wants the fascism, but there are other things he wants less than being inconvenienced by the idea of needing to share very much. Yeah. Um, and and I th- I think that there's a there's something there's a compelling nuance. about that. Yeah, there's a nuance there where it's it's sort of. The Doctor's desperately fighting someone who, who themselves isn't really that bothered about fighting the Doctor, just wants to be left alone to get on and make money, albeit in a relatively dastardly way. But it's, yeah. it's born out of not really caring about other people rather than wanting to genuinely do them ill.
1: It's an inactive kind of villainy.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and that the opposition to the Doctor comes about because the Doctor keeps trying to thwart his actions, yeah. not because he philosophically hates what the doctor is up to. The doctor's know, or, just or, a
1: fly that he wants to swat away.
0: Oh, oh well no, I would yeah, I mean more the other way I think really is like Well I, I guess, that, yeah. That yeah. the master on some level is like I'm a gorgeous, beautiful blue <laughs> bottle and I keep being swatted by the newspaper of the doctor and you know, mm. therefore how do I overthrow that tyranny?
1: For sure, for sure. Well thank you so much for talking to me, um, Rufus. Maybe we'll finish on a on a silly question again. Um Great. I So before the lockdown hit, I was writing a book about visiting every city in the UK and there are 69 in total. And I, I was going to them all and I'd gone to about a third of them and then coronavirus happened and my mission was brought to a halt. Um, but I was watching a clip of Would I Lie to You the other day where you talk about having vis- visited all of the Red Lion pubs within the M25. Yeah. Um, which I really related to. I I just thought, I want to do that. So I I guess I want to know what was the best Red Lion pub. And although it's kind of hard to answer because it would surely just be the Red Lion. (laughs) I I suppose, was it worth doing?
0: And then I leave it at that and just hang up, right? (laughs) (laughs) The the Red Lion. Anyway, good talking to you. Bye, Molly. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, look, it was my 25th birthday. Me and my two closest friends took a week off work and it was really just an excuse to frame a week of heavy drinking as some kind of adventure with a purpose. And what we learned over those five days about ourselves is that we were way more interested in being shit faced than we really were about the adventure. And we had a wonderful time, and we did, the adventure definitely gave it an extra shot in the arm. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anyone. It it wasn't like any kind of cultural programme. It was just the idea that we could go on this enormous week-long pub crawl because we were 25 years old and our livers would forgive us eventually. Um, Would I recommend it? Absolutely. As long as you like heavy drinking and you've got Mm. other people around you who can keep up and not fall over and, and you're not worried about dying... Um, but it then, was centered yeah. around
1: the drinking. You you wouldn't recommend going to the mall and having a Coca Cola.
0: I would recommend going about your own adventures in whichever way you see you fit. <laughs> it it just so happened that one of the common bonds between me and my friends has always been our capacity to drink uh, an inordinate amount sure. and and remain very cheery with each other. I mean, I think that's that's probably the the thing to say is that we. Um, we as three drinking compatriots just get funnier and more lovely and more in love with each other, the more we drink. And therefore it was a lovely thing to do for a week, whether we can remember the promises we made, the, you know, the the vows that were taken over those five days is neither here nor there. It's that, you Mm. know, on some inebriated level, it was a way that we could express how much we loved each other. Um, Whilst being absolute, undoubted uh, drunken assholes <laughs> well,
1: what a wholesome end to the podcast that is
0: <laughs> that's right yeah for all the talk of you know how doctor who can um, take an idea and examine it in abstract to more fully examine the human condition it ends <laughs> with me saying no drink everything tell your friends you love them and uh, try and be as merry an asshole as you are, because ultimately, part of the human condition is accepting that deep down you are a bit of an asshole.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for talking to me. Um, good luck with the ice dancing and everything. Yeah, thanks. And, yeah. And um, yeah, wh- where can people find your exploits on Twitter and in the yeah in the wider world?
0: Um. So. Uh do you know, Molly, without even realising, you have brought this around to a glorious segue. Uh, on Twitter, I'm just at Rufus Hound. But one of the people I went on that big, long drinking trip with is has been my best friend since I was 13, a man called Steve. And um, Steve and I recently did a charity stream for Mark Watson's What's On-A-Thon. Um, and... Uh, I played Trivial Pursuit for 24 hours against a variety of folk, including Sophia Miles, who Crikey. I also referenced moments ago. Um, we were on a team together. She was the first game that we played. Uh, I, some video of that is available on YouTube, although the stream crashed. And so you won't get to see who won in the end. Although it was, of course, Sophia and I. Um, and anyway, it was really good fun. And it was fun enough that Steve and I decided that we would then try and uh, do it again and do it regularly. So we have launched a thing called Just Luder which is a, a quiz show that we play every Monday night, currently from 7pm, although that may yet change, uh, on Twitch. So if you go to twitch.tv forward slash Just then you will see me and a variety of delightful folk playing a quiz show uh, for too long on a Monday night. Uh, We're also working out a way of doing it that uh, just folks in the real world can play with us. And that has also been very lovely, although there has already been a flurry of people saying, I want to be on it, I want to be on it. And, uh, and and so I'm not making any guarantee to your listeners that mm. by emailing justludaquiz at rufushound.com will bring about any guarantee that they will be able to play. But uh, if you watch the show and enjoy it on Twitch and send us an email, then uh, there is some chance mm. in the if future. If
1: they beg you in a creative way, maybe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you are a person of colour and a content creator... Uh, I've realised that many of the people I want to ask to be on this show for free because we have not yet worked out how to monetize any of this and we don't, you know, having been out of work for <laughs> most of 2020 there isn't really a budget to make any of this but if, if you're a person of colour and a content creator uh, or, or you're a product creator of any kind then uh, I especially want to hear from you because all it is is playing a quiz, all it is is mucking about, but I definitely would like to use as much of that platform as I can to shine a light on um, people that I don't naturally know how to reach out to and people who have largely been underrepresented uh, in the kind of cultural exploits that I've been engaged in because if that weren't true, I would have more... Uh, people in my <laughs> contact book that I would call on that would match that description. So uh, yeah, I'm also using it as a way of making new friends.
1: That is exactly why I made this pod, why I started making this podcast, because I just wanted to speak to other people about Doctor Who, and I wasn't, I didn't have the <laughs> um, didn't have the avenue to do that. But yeah, you can you can follow me on Twitter at Molly underscore Martian. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Galaxy Pod, and you can email me uh, with any complaints, questions, queries. Um, at pod at gmail.com but until next time bye bye everybody bye